So you're calling me now from Iowa, where you've been attending Nikki Haley events across the state. We all know what a Trump rally looks like, but what's the vibe at a Nikki Haley rally? I think um, even the term rally might be a bit <laughs> much. They're sort of more traditional, slightly canned stump speech occasions, I would say. Like a Nikki Haley junket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very carefully constructed talking points, rolled out five questions, and she is on her plane. That's Antonia Hitchens. She's been following Nikki Haley's campaign ahead of the Iowa caucus, which is on Monday. The purpose of Iowa, as many strategists see it, is not to pick the winner of the election, but to narrow the field. Donald Trump is poised to win Iowa pretty handily, but Haley is working hard to defeat Ron DeSantis for the second-place spot. She's doing this, in part, by presenting herself as the last moderate standing and as the Republican most likely to beat Joe Biden. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. At one of the Haley events that you attended, um, that you recently wrote about, she asked the room who was seeing her for the first time, and I think more than half of the crowd raised their hands. So who are these undecided Iowa voters who are scoping her out? It's interesting because if you've been to a Trump rally, which I'm guessing you have been to, um, most people are there because they already are pretty enraptured with Trump and they know they're going to vote for him and they're just coming out to show support, um, to kind of get excited. It feels more like a Rolling Stones concert. Mm -hmm. These Haley events in Iowa are much more people who are still trying to cast about for alternatives to make that choice. So you'll meet people on the way in who are sort of saying, you know, maybe Ramaswamy, maybe Haley, maybe DeSantis, but who knows? Um, What's interesting is that she does pull in a lot of voters who usually would be Democrats or independents, but who in Iowa can actually register as Republicans for the day. Um, And so I think those more moderate Republicans, independents and Democrats are kind of coming over and thinking maybe this is just the most reasonable choice we can make because we're sick of Trump. Haley's rise has been pretty interesting just because she kind of seems like a more establishment conservative candidate. And that's definitely not the direction that the GOP has been going in for the past few years. So she's not trying to win over people from Trump necessarily. It's like everyone else. Well, Trump's team recently called her the latest carbon copy from establishment central casting. And what she hasn't been able to do is pull in what some people would refer to as sort of the Trump base in the backwoods who are just going to vote with him no matter what. And Haley herself is pitching the kind of Republican brand which is compared to somebody more like Mitt Romney, Mm -hmm. the more traditional establishment conservative who in an earlier version of the party would have seemed like a much more natural fit, but who today does seem, I think, a bit out of step with the more America first iteration of the party that remains dominated by Trump and by Trump 2.0s who are campaigning for him around the state like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Can you talk a little bit more about, like, the specific people you've met who say that they plan to vote for Haley? Like, I remember in your piece, there's a guy who he's like a sculptor um, and kind of seems almost like he should be a Democrat, but he likes Haley. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting chart of people because, you know, you have somebody like Nikki Haley who 
initially came on the national scene as a Tea Party candidate and who I don't think we would have necessarily imagined discussing as this moderate with a consensus appeal who's bringing in, you know, people who last time around would have gone maybe for somebody like Elizabeth Warren Mm -hmm. are suddenly coming out and thinking, okay, looking at the field today, the most plausible candidate for me is Nikki Haley. Um, For example, in Des Moines over the weekend, I was at a brewery and there was a man whose wife was there who was a journalist and he said that they are going to change their registrations from Democrat to Republican to caucus for Haley because she's kind of the de facto vote against Trump. And then, as you said, yeah, there are a lot of people who seem much more like traditional Democratic voters who have really been adrift in the past few months of Joe Biden's presidency and are looking for alternatives actually in the Republican Party. And Haley is the only one who can really appeal to them meaningfully, I would say. How has Haley been able to so successfully transform her image? Because, I mean, not only did she first arrive on the scene as a Tea Party candidate, but she was in the Trump administration. And so it just seems kind of funny that she is now like the more moderate, rational candidate running against Trump rather than another Trump crony. Totally. And I think that speaks to how carefully Nikki Haley has calibrated her campaign message. Um, She's picked a strategy and a strategist and she's stuck with them. And it's this disciplined data-driven strategy where she kind of trots out these talking points that are pretty vanilla. You know, she'll say things like, don't you think people in D.C. and Congress are too old? You know, don't (laughs) you all miss when things felt simple? Um, And she'll hearken back to a more 1980s vision of the world. She'll quote Reagan, she'll quote Thatcher. So she's really kind of decided to focus on this normalcy and this electability um, as a way of revamping, you know, a history and career, which in fact was much more to the right of what she's proposing today at her campaign stops. What are like the big issues that she tends to focus on at these events? Like, are there any concrete promises that she's making in terms of what she's going to do if, if she were to take office? I think it's hard to discern how much of it could really translate to being something she would do. They're mostly bromides about um, the direction that the country has gone in. Um, The one kind of bullet point she's added to her stump speech since I saw her in September is um, one about, you know, the post-October 7th response. So she's promising that America will be an ally to Israel, and she's really doubling down on that. And the other thing she's promising, which sets her apart completely from the other GOP candidates in the race, is that um, she's very committed still to giving weapons to Ukraine, which other candidates have said, you know, they won't do. And so on the foreign policy, as it were, I think that really does distinguish her. Um, But how does that work in terms of being seen as a moderate? Because it seems like those are pretty hawkish positions. Exactly. Um, And I think that... As much as she will present herself as a moderate compared to Trump, if you look a little bit closer at her record and her views, it's very hawkish. Um, She is unabashedly in favor of a huge American military presence abroad, but she crafts it in this way where she says, you know, my husband is deployed currently abroad, and so I want to do this in a way that um, actually eventually will bring our troops home, but first means that we have to devote 
you know, much more resources to America abroad. But um, it does mean that her critics definitely come after her for that stance and say that it's really not compatible with the version of the GOP that they think um, needs to be kind of reaffirmed this fall. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Ron DeSantis. I, I just think it's fascinating that you know, at this time last year, Haley was 30 points behind Ron DeSantis in the polls, and now she and DeSantis are less than one point apart. Um, and as you mentioned in your piece, the Trump campaign is now spending millions of dollars on attack ads against Haley, and they're not even really bothering with DeSantis anymore. Um, you know, when you're in Iowa, do you just get the sense that it is really like a, a Trump versus Haley situation now? Or is DeSantis still very much on people's minds. I mean, has the race kind of winnowed down in that way? So people say that Iowa isn't so much about deciding, you know, who's going to win in November, but it's more about narrowing the race to the candidates that the rest of the country should take seriously going forward, which in this case means, you know, Trump and whoever comes in second. And Haley has really really caught up to DeSantis in a way that I think has surprised people here because DeSantis has the endorsement of what people call the evangelical kingmaker, Bob Vanderplotz, um, mm-hmm. and also the governor, Kim Reynolds. And he's really made a big deal of his stance on abortion. Um, I was at a conference over the summer where they signed into law the um, heartbeat bill here. And DeSantis has really kind of married himself to the cause of the unborn, which is hugely important to voters in Iowa. But it's interesting because in reality, you have a president like Trump who, you know, is not nearly as conservative as DeSantis on abortion. And then you have somebody like Haley who talks about, you know, having had a friend in college who had to get an abortion and making that hard choice. And it doesn't seem like the issue that DeSantis has made the big thing for him seems to matter that much in the polls. And Haley also has been able to get all of the money from the big donors. So she has Wall Street. She has even Democratic billionaires. She has all the mega donors who make it possible for her to have this huge war chest of money going into the next few months, whereas DeSantis has spent everything on Iowa. And it really hasn't panned out for him despite those endorsements. So you have the situation now where everyone's describing his campaign as being on life support. They're saying, you know, it's basically (laughs) hospice care, make the patient comfortable, which, you know, compared to five or six months ago, seems like a real fall for him in the state that he thought he could bet everything on. Totally. Um, So, Antonia, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the challenges of campaigning in Iowa. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more of the political scene from The New Yorker in just a moment. So Iowa was such a mess in the last election cycle. Um, There were all those technical difficulties and delays, chaos involving, you know, an app. That was the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. But still, does it seem like this is something that is on voters' minds? What we've heard about in the final lead up to the caucus this week actually is whether you're seeing reporters and pollsters making spreadsheets of the temperature in Des Moines for next Monday, the 15th, because they're saying that, you know, these really low temperatures, this bad weather can actually lead to much lower turnout. And that can really lead to 
a surprise in terms of whether or not the results match up with what they have been prophesying. And so it is a sort of quaint, funny thing about coming to Iowa where, you know, it could come down to it's negative two degrees, the roads are bad. And that actually is what puts one person slightly ahead of another. That's interesting. Um, so another thing going on with Iowa is, is that this year the Democrats moved their first primary to South Carolina. And so right now there are only Republicans campaigning in Iowa. I guess like, you know, there has been all of this discourse about like Iowa sort of feeling, you know, Iowans feeling like they just have less of a say and that the caucus itself is just like less important. I guess I'm just wondering whether people kind of feel like this is a remnant of elections past or something. You know, the fact that we we all collect here and go to diners and also, you have Trump, who's not even really doing these things. Yeah, yeah. And then a lot of the traditional horse raciness of Iowa is taken away when you have the former president, you know, often 30 points ahead of even the person in second. And so I think the sense of Iowa decides you're blessed to have the first choice, tell us who you've selected, you know, maybe is seen a bit in relief when there is a front runner that we've been so clearly seeing for so many months. If Haley were to do really well in Iowa, how would you interpret that? I think many people feel like, you know, for example, today, Trump is in D.C. in court. He's coming back to Iowa tonight for a rally with Matt Whitaker in Boone, Iowa. But he's clearly dogged by the possibility of, you know, what if something happens where Trump is no longer in play? And so I think the emphasis on Haley's potential second place is what happens if something unexpected happens with Trump and then all of a sudden DeSantis has sort of been knocked aside and we're left with Nikki Haley, which seemed, you know, utterly inconceivable a year ago. Do you think that's kind of what Haley is banking on? Because one thing I've been trying to figure out is like you have all of these powerful conservative donors, including the, you know, the Koch network who are throwing their support behind her. And right now it seems like that support is managed to help her sort of get closer to securing that second place spot, but you don't donate a bunch of money to someone because you want them to get second place. So do you think that, that Haley is trying to become like the Republican Party's top contingency plan? Like that's what she's actually <laughs> running for? Um, I think, you know, the Republican donor class, and as I said before, even some Democratic billionaires have assembled behind Haley. But in this day and age, I think big money in the donor class may not have the same sway as they used to and that they may not be able to sway the base away from Trump. Um, one Republican strategist was quoted as saying that the donor money is sort of like having the best bows and arrows in the age of gunpowder. <laughs> and so you have Haley who has all this money assembled behind her because she's hoping that it can help her come in second. But I think it doesn't resolve the question of what about the base who is going to stick with Trump? I think for the donors, it's really about um, they're sick of the Trump chaos and they want somebody who is much more kind of attentive to their needs and to these more traditional needs of an older Republican Party that, you know, they haven't had somebody since before Obama who was representing those needs in the same kind of traditional way that they could probably count on Haley to do. And so there is also, of course, the question of what if, she is the VP pick, um, that would give them a lot of access, as would something like Secretary of State. And so I think if you're looking for the kind of most likely 
path to power and access. Um, Haley's the one who is going to deliver that for them. I guess it just doesn't seem like Haley is really positioning herself to be a VP pick because of the way in which she's tried to really distance herself from her former time in the Trump administration. Haley has been so cautious about walking this extremely precarious line where much as she has distanced herself from Trump, she goes to great pains not to meaningfully speak out against him. So she's not going the Chris Christie route. No, no. And she, um, you know, she's one of the few former Trump people who's both maintained kind of a semblance of a relationship with him, but also a distance from him. So she's neither seen as kind of his nemesis nor somebody who's enslaved to him. And, you know, that does mean that you have voters who come to her. And for example, on Saturday, a woman stood up in the Q&A of Haley's event and basically asked her will you denounce Trump a little bit more than you have already to, you know, show us Mm -hmm. who you are. And Haley, as she often does, um, you know, pivots very gracefully to not denouncing Trump. She'll either say something like, you know, I tell hard truths, or she'll, in this case, she said quite clearly, for those of you who want me to hit Trump more, I'm just not going to do it, is what she told people. And to me, that seems, you know, like a pretty almost lab-designed, consultant-driven approach to make sure that she remains in play if Trump has to call upon her in any capacity. Because um, if Haley is what he needs to be able to win, I think he'd be willing to do that. Even though it doesn't seem like who he might pick for VP at this point, I think a candidate like Haley, who's so careful and so much wants power, is making sure that she doesn't do anything now that might make that impossible down the road. You mentioned the phrase consultant driven, um, which I feel like is used a lot to kind of describe Haley and just, you know, kind of the persona that she gives off. And it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, this idea of someone being calculated and not actually being that genuine, I feel like it's a critique that's, you know, more often than not, you know, applied toward women. And so it's one of those things where, I almost hate to even ask, but I guess I'm just curious how genuine you think Haley is. And part of the reason why I wonder this is because you mentioned that she has this whole data-focused campaign and that they're doing a lot in terms of, you know, sort of polling. And so I guess just like when you go to these events, do you get the sense that when she's talking about her, um, you know, her stance on abortion and it's a much more moderate stance than what you see from someone like DeSantis or, you know, from previous candidates who have already dropped out, like Pence, like, do you get the sense that she's coming from a place where she's, this is actually how she feels? Or do you think that the data actually is driving a lot of her positions, including, you know, the way that she treats Donald Trump? When you see Haley um, in front of a crowd, she's very polished, very well rehearsed. And I think so well rehearsed that it comes across in a way that strikes people as genuine. You know, to me, she's somebody who, when she pauses for a beat to remember something, you get the sense that Mm -hmm. she's pausing because she's pretending that she has to remember because she thinks that will look good. And, you know, it does. The town hall events come across exactly the way that she wants them to. So I think compared to somebody like DeSantis, you know, there's been a great discussion about the just kind of awkwardness involved there. Um, I think Haley manages to come across as genuine in a way that is more than enough for people to feel like they're willing to get behind her. Um, What I would say is that when I went to 
an event with Gen Z conservative candidates who were watching Haley do kind of a back and forth with Governor Sununu from New Hampshire, who's endorsed Haley and who's on the trail with her. It was more that it was an older fashioned version of politics on display. You know, these very canned remarks from both of them about, you know, we love to be normal. We love to have fun. We love to not just be politicians. And I think to the crowd of younger people who run for office themselves, um, they feel like Trump's style of politics is just more of the moment. And so I think it's not so much that Haley is uniquely disingenuous or that it has to do with her being a woman. I think it's the newer style of politics that we see um, in these more sort of America first candidates that has deviated from these traditional playbooks of having to present yourself as a politician in the same way. Absolutely. I can totally see how that would be the case. Um, You know, you mentioned New Hampshire, which is also the next primary coming just over a week after Iowa. How was Haley poised to do there? I mean, it seems like it's, it's complete different situation than than Iowa, which is, um, you know, largely evangelical. Yeah. Well, it's worth noting that Iowa, like a lot of Midwestern states that once had a progressive history, has sort of been transformed by economic decline and flight of young people into a stronghold for Trump and, as you say, is very evangelical. So it's never been natural ground for Haley, especially in a state that's shifted more to Trump from Obama than any state in the union. So it's worth noting that even a narrow second in Iowa is huge for her. In Mm -hmm. New Hampshire, it's a different story because the most recent poll that came out on New Hampshire shows Haley as second to Trump and beating DeSantis by a huge number of points. And I think that in terms of what happens if DeSantis doesn't win Iowa and then is so far behind in New Hampshire, you're looking at this strange situation where it could be that Haley wins Iowa and New Hampshire, and then we have, you know, her home state, South Carolina, and that sort of sets the course of the race for the months to come. And how much longer does DeSantis hang on? I I guess I've always thought that, like, if she were to, um, you know, just get, like, trounced in South Carolina, that would probably (laughs) be the end of her candidacy. I mean, what is your sense of, like, her... um, her plan and like the states that she's banking on. And um, I guess it all kind of depends on how she does in Iowa and New Hampshire first. But do you see South Carolina as like the big one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm hesitant to speculate on things like this, but Biden did visit South Carolina recently to do a campaign event at Mother Emanuel Church where Mm -hmm. the shooting occurred. Um, And Haley hit him hard for that event, saying, you know, how dare you tell me about segregation based on your own record, and how dare you do an event for yourself in this church, which is sacred. And Haley is the one who took down the Confederate flag in South Carolina after that shooting, which, you know, she brings up quite a bit in speeches, in town halls. And so I think she's tried to set herself up as being more popular than Biden with people in South Carolina. But, you know, the interesting thing about campaign season so far is that I've never seen her in her home state. I've seen her in Iowa and New Hampshire. I'd be curious how she revises her message when she's back home um, and how she decides to present herself there, because we don't know that it will be the same person that we're seeing in these states. Totally. I mean, I was surprised when, um, you know, there was sort of that recent gaffe where she was asked about the causes of the Civil War. I mean, I think it always comes down to the role of government. 
and what the rights of the people are. And we, I will always stand by the fact that I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. Government doesn't need to tell you how to live your life. They don't need to tell you what you can and can't do. They don't need to be a part of your life. They need to make sure that you have freedom. We need to have capitalism. We need to have economic freedom. We need to make sure that we do all things so that individuals have the liberties so that they can have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do or be anything they want to be without government getting in the way. And then in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. But yeah, her messaging on race and everything, especially given that Biden is centering his campaign around white supremacy, is is interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are times when I've seen her deliver this, I would say, eight to 10 minute yarn about when she as the first female of color governor of South Carolina took down the Confederate flag. And, you know, I've seen people in the audience start crying and I've seen them come over afterwards and thank her and then leave deciding to vote for her. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we can analyze that to bits for, you know, how she's deploying that act. But um, it is something that resonates with people. And so I think with Biden making his campaign about white supremacy, um, she'll be able to kind of hit him back in that arena as needed, I think. Does it seem to you that Haley is already kind of trying to run against Biden rather than run against Trump and DeSantis and the other people in the GOP? Just because it seems like one of her, like the main appeal for, you know, for a lot of voters is this idea that in the polls, it's showing that she would beat Biden a lot more handily than Trump would. Exactly. And Haley has brought up the poll that shows her beating Biden by 17 points, while Trump beats him only by four points, which is officially described as a margin of error. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of positioning herself as the Republican candidate who can beat Biden, that's definitely a main part of her appeal that she is doubling down on in these final days in Iowa. And I think it's part of what brings people over to her um, because they're, you know, extremely, extremely alienated from the version of the Democratic Party that Biden has given them. And she's pitching over and over again that kind of the response to Democratic chaos shouldn't be Republican chaos, shouldn't be Trump's chaos. It should be normal, simple, old-fashioned Republican politics as embodied by Nikki Haley. I mean, I could see that, you know, appealing to um, Democrats, independents, like blue dog types. Um, <laughs> but do you think that Republican voters are focusing on, you know, who is it that is actually, you know, the most electable here? Or do you think that it is more of a, um, you know, we want to go to the Rolling Stones concert? I think the people who want to go to the Rolling Stones concert have liked that Rolling Stones concert since 2016. And they feel it was taken from them in 2020. And now in 2024, they can come back out and support it again. I think it's a much smaller range of voters who are sitting around in these final 10 days and deciding between these candidates. And I guess the sense here is that, you know, can that number of undecided voters actually be meaningful and be surprising in Iowa in terms of the numbers as compared to Trump or are we sentenced to a Biden-Trump rematch? Yeah. Let's hope that those undecided voters don't just stay home because it's too cold outside. (laughs) Keep keep checking the weather spreadsheets on Twitter. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, thank you so much, Antonia. Thanks so much for having me. Antonia Hitchens is a writer and reporter. You can read her dispatch from Iowa on NewYorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. This episode was produced by Michelle Moses with editing from Susie Lechtenberg. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy your week and we'll see you next Wednesday.